Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Heights Church. We meet weekly at 9 and 11 a.m. For more information, visit SalemHeightsChurch.org. What a blessing to be able to uh, worship God this morning. Amen. Uh, this morning, um, I, I have felt led. Uh, last night, I was just uh, praying through what's going to be happening during the course of this next week. But I actually wanted to extend our prayer time this morning. Uh, AJ just prayed for us as we get ready to worship that our hearts uh, would be ready to listen. Um, but there's also some pretty amazing things that are happening this week. And I, I really do believe that God responds to the prayers of the saints. And as we collectively uh, focus on certain things, he, he enables them to go forward with a, a, a unique energy after a time of prayer. And one of the amazing things that's happening in our church this week is our women's retreat. How many of you guys have heard that there is such a thing happening this week? This is, a, yeah, yeah, a few of you. Where is Julie at? Uh, there's her hand right over. Julie, will you just stand? I'm sorry to do this to you. I didn't tell you. It's not on camera to my knowledge. Uh, let's just give Julie a hand this morning, a worshiper. But uh, Julie and her team, and if you were to talk to her, she would take uh, no credit. That's her character. Uh, but her entire team have been working really tirelessly to do a couple of things. Uh, one is to put on a, a great conference that will lift up the Lord and the Word of God rather than any church. I just want you to wrap your mind around that. Um, they're not trying to advertise out there in the world, come to our church or be a part of Salem Heights. They're saying, come to the Lord and yield to his word. And I think that's what you'll see. The, the result is, I, I think there's somewhere around 100 churches that are participating and 850 women that are coming to a conference this week. Yeah. Now, I get a little nervous when we start using numbers. So why in the world would we... Would we throw that out there for you? Uh, I believe that the enemy hates this, all right? And so therefore, this week, there's going to be discouragement. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but we're, coming, we're at the frosty edge of a pandemic. There's all kinds of sickness, all kinds of things that could get kind of hurled into the mix. And when it's your first time putting on an event of this size... They really want to stay out of it. They don't want to make it about Salem Heights or about Salem Heights Women's Ministry. They want it to be about Jesus. So will you join me in praying a couple of things? One, that the Lord would protect that team, and keep them healthy and able to do their very best to serve him this week. Two, that it really would be about the Lord and the Word and not about us. And three, that women would go back from that conference into their churches on fire for the Lord in such a way, let's pray that God uses this either to spark revival or to stack the kindling for it, but that we might see revival in our valley, right? How awesome would it be if it came through the church and not through our politics? Would that be beautiful? That was a mediocre clap, but we're going to pray after that, okay? Let's, let's pray. Father, we, we pray right now that you would keep that team healthy. Father, we thank you. Um, numbers matter because people, people matter. But far greater than that, uh, it also adds weight. 
in this moment, uh, we feel the weight of expectations. We feel the concerns of all those that are coming. We live in a fractured society where 10 people cannot get together without some kind of faction or irritation happening. Father, we pray that you would keep that far from this event. As a hundred churches get together and all of the people begin to uh, converse about what matters most to them, I pray that it's Jesus and the Word that matters most. Uh, That the ability to erase all of the irritation and focus on you, your glory, your goodness, Father, let that be what happens. And we pray, not, Father, that you would enlarge our territory, but that you would enlarge yours, that churches would grow, that women would be encouraged, that they would go away uh, and be a source, a, a passion, excitement, a picture of revival fire in their churches, Father, that you would use them to be a part of re-enlivening a church, to give it its voice back in a culture where it's drowned out with so many other noises. Give them peace, direction, strength this week. Father, I pray that you'd encourage their hearts, even as they do a heavy load of work. Um, We pray, by your grace, we'd rejoice this time, next week, uh, at an event that led to something magnificent, your glory, your goodness being raised another level in this valley. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, We are once again in the book of Daniel, um, and this is actually aptly titled with uh, all the songs we were singing and the prayer we just prayed. Um, This is uh, titled, Leadership Can Make You Nuts, all right? Daniel chapter 4, and as we've been going through here, uh, both Pete and I have been trying to also insert just little interesting tidbits. You know, uh, Daniel is one of the most fought over, uh, it's a a piece of territory that scholars have tried to rip out of the Bible. And the reason is, its prophecies are so accurate, and its statements uh, to believers are so specific and so profound that even liberals are like, we've got to get rid of this witness. We got to get rid of it. And so they've said for a long time, and usually all it takes is a PhD and a good chin scratch for them to create questions about the Bible, right? They just go, "Uh, I don't think that actually happened. And uh, we all shy away and, and hide in the darkness. And so the result is that they've said about the book of Daniel, well, there's no possible way that it could have been written when it says that it was written. Daniel can't actually have been from around Uh, 500 BC. There's no possible way he could say these things because all of this history that unfolded after it unfolded so accurately, we don't believe that that can actually happen. Do you believe that God can actually speak? Do you believe that he spoke through a prophet and... Yes, Lord? I don't know uh, what just happened there. Um, I feel like God wants me to move on. There is uh, an interesting prism that was found in a bunch of clay tablets. Uh, By the way, there are thousands and thousands of tablets from around this time period that still have yet to be translated. But a prism, which is a five-sided clay tablet, is actually uh, on display. It's back now. Um, in a museum, but it actually has these uh, statements on it. Five-sided prism found in Babylon, housed in the Istanbul Museum. 
And on there, uh, William Shea, Dr. William Shea, studying uh, these things, found these three names inscribed on the prism. One uh, is the first on the list. And by the way, it's just a list of goods that were received on behalf of the king in order for them to have a celebration. And three men's names are listed there. Ardi Nabu, the official of the royal prince, which sounds, uh, this is the Akkadian version of what would have been uh, his Babylonian name, you know, Abednego. Another name found on the list is Hanunu, commander of the king's merchants, which is very similar exactly to Hananiah. And another was Meshalem, who was an official to Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Marduk was the name of the Babylonian god, but we find with Meshalem the... Same name, Mishael, as we get it in Hebrew and in also Aramaic. Here are these three men that were all officials attached to Nebuchadnezzar over the area of Babylon during the time of the book of Daniel, receiving goods in his name and administrating the kingdom. Three officials that had to check the boxes to say, we received the goods. Now, William Shea has said, I believe this is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in their Babylonian names. He said this almost 30 years ago. And to this point, no scholar has been able to say, no, that's not true. It looks as if it is. In fact, the more that they uh, begin to translate these clay tablets and the records that they're finding from Babylon, the more profound truth is found in evidence of the book of Daniel. Not only happening the way it happened, but that its history is actually more accurate than what we have understood the history to be. It is being, as they are reading those clay tablets, it is being established. Daniel told the truth. You can trust it. We're going to look at another true story that happened in Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. And in here, uh, we're going to read this first part and then we're going to save his final words for the end. But King Nebuchadnezzar actually has a proclamation for you. So this was written by a foreign king on our behalf. One of the only chapters in Scripture that was written by a foreign king for believers. Let's stand as we read these opening verses here in Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4 says, King Nebuchadnezzar, to those of every people, nation, and language who live in the whole earth, may your prosperity increase. I am pleased to tell you about the miracles and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his miracles, how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace, and I had a dream, and it frightened me while I was in my bed. The images and visions in my mind alarmed me, so I issued a decree to bring all of the wise men of Babylon to me in order that they might make the dream's interpretation known to me. When the magicians, mediums, Chaldeans, and diviners came in, I told them the dream, but they could not make its interpretation known to me. Just a side note, this is the storyline for the first half of the book of Daniel. Dreams come to somebody else. Daniel's called in on behalf of God to interpret them. Second half of the book, Daniel has dreams, and God tells him what's going to happen in the future. Finally, Daniel named Belshazzar after the name of my God, and the spirit of the holy gods is in him, came before me. And I told him the dream, Belshazzar. 
head of the magicians, because I know that you have a spirit of the holy gods and that no mystery puzzles you. Explain to me the visions of my dream, which I saw, and its interpretation. In the vision of my mind, as I was laying in my bed, I saw this. There was a tree in the middle of the earth, and it was very tall. The tree grew large and strong. Its top reached to the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit was abundant, and on it was food for all. Wild animals found shelter in it. The birds of the sky lived in its branches. Every creature was fed from it. As I was lying in my bed, I also saw a vision in my mind, a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven, and he called out loudly, cut down the tree and chop off its branches, strip off its leaves, scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from underneath it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump with its roots in the ground, with a band of iron and bronze around it. In the tender grass of the field, let him be drenched with dew from the sky and share the plants of the earth with the animals. Let his mind be changed from that of a human. Let him be given the mind of an animal for seven periods of time. This word is by the decree of the watchers. The decision is by the command of the holy ones. This is so that the living will know that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms. He gives to anyone uh, what he wants, and he sets the lowliest of people over them. This is the dream that I, Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belshazzar, tell me its interpretation, because none of the wise men in my kingdom can make this interpretation known to me. But you can, because you have a spirit of the holy gods. Now get this moment. It says, then Daniel, whose name is Belshazzar, was stunned for a moment. His thoughts alarmed him. The king said, Belshazzar, don't let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. Belshazzar answered, my Lord, may the dream apply to those who hate you and its interpretation to your enemies. The tree that you saw, which grew large and strong, whose top reached to the sky and visible to the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit was abundant, and on it was food for all, and under it the wild animals lived and its branches, the birds of the sky lived. That tree is you, your majesty. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown and even reaches the sky. Your dominion extends to the ends of the earth. The king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree, destroy it, but leave the stump with its roots in the ground, with a band of iron and bronze around it, in the tender grass of the field. Let it be drenched with dew from the sky and share food with the wild animals for seven periods of time. This is the interpretation, your majesty. This is the decree from the Most High that's been issued against my Lord the King. You will be driven from people. To live with the wild animals, you will feed on grass like cattle and be drenched with dew from the sky for seven periods of time until you acknowledge that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms. He gives them to anyone he wants. As for the command to leave the tree stump and its roots, your kingdom will be restored to you as soon as you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, may my advice seem good to you, my king. Separate yourself from your sins by doing what is right and from your injustices by showing mercy to the needy. Perhaps there will be an extension 
of your prosperity. Let's pause there. Do you believe that that actually happened? It did. You may be seated. I just want us this morning to uh, grab four devotional thoughts from this segment of Scripture that actually happened. I want us to look at the moment that happened, what could have been going through Nebuchadnezzar's mind, but I also want us to thoughtfully apply this to ourselves today. Here is a foreign king that was called on by God to write his testimony into Scripture so that you and I, this is what Romans tells us, these things were written so that we might not crave sin as they craved it, so that we might not do what they did and suffer the same consequences. So we not only see what he did and hear what he says, but we're given an opportunity to repent like he repented. First thing I want you to see in this chapter is that Nebuchadnezzar's greatness deluded him. Here he is looking around at all of his greatness in the middle of the night. He is troubled by something, and the dream that comes to him is, what would happen, Nebuchadnezzar, if you lost it all? Now we'll hear about his reflection on this. He was able to stay humble for a moment, but can I just give you some statistics that were uh, recently brought out? Uh, USA Today did a a survey uh, with Phoenix Wealth Management. It was just basically a large group of guys who had brought in a million dollars or more in the last year in their own portfolios. And so they asked them to survey, what is the reason that you are so successful? Just check the boxes that you think apply to you. 99% of them checked uh, the box that said, I just work harder than anyone else. Uh, 97% said, I have a higher IQ than anyone else. 87% said, I do this by being the best and the smartest person in the room. 32% of them said, at times it is luck. 0% said God had anything to do with it. Let's pause and think about that. This is the wealthiest of the wealthy, and the evidence is, if I am here, it's because I have this ability, and I'm just harder, stronger, more intense, more thoughtful, more brilliant than anybody else in the room. Who here qualifies? Right? Get your stones ready. When the hand goes up. That's great business, man. We're not that different. The interesting thing is in survey after survey, if you take a look at the American spirit, this is what is listed in us. When our market is strong, when our economy is strong, 75% of Americans agree with these businessmen. Hard work and us just being smarter than the rest of the world is what has given us greatness. Do you believe that's true? Just collectively look at the people running the ship right now. Is our collective IQ higher than the rest of the world's? No. We have dedicated people, folks. We do have to understand this. We have dedicated people doing their very best to try to make a difference. But if the hand of God is not in it, you cannot have success. What is What was confronting Nebuchadnezzar? Imagine for a moment that you've been captured like Daniel and You, along with 3,200 other people, young royals, have been brought into the city. And from the distance, you can actually see Babylon laying out there, this massive city. In the center is a temple to Marduk and the palace 
to Nebuchadnezzar, as you were walking on the way, there were these lions. The lions, not of Judah, not of Israel, but the lions of Babylon. And they were standing over in a dominating position all of the kings that they had subjugated. This would be on your road as you were going into Babylon. As you approached the city from a distance, you'd see the Ishtar Gate. This is actually not a recreation. These are the bricks that come from the Ishtar gate that were baked that still have the color blue that was royal on them. They've been carted away. They're in a museum in Germany, but the actual Ishtar gate is right there. You can see it still today. They had that kind of technology. And from a distance, you would see this. And all along this long pathway, there was a street that you'd be able to see where you would actually walk along and the people on the, the tops of the walls would jeer at you as you were heading towards that gate. And you know, the moment that you passed through that gate, you were theirs. You weren't coming back. You were consistently going to be under Nebuchadnezzar. The walls of the city were massive. As you take a look at uh, what it would have experienced, in fact, uh, you you look at the city that is probably Nebuchadnezzar's, this is a recreation, but what is the size of the city of Babylon? It would have been the size of the city of Chicago. Over 200 square miles, five separate walls that were in there, some of them built over 300 feet tall. A section of wall 40 feet tall that they would have chariot races around because it was so wide, so strong, and so thick they felt that no army could stand against them. When Babylon finally fell, silently in one night, it took 12 days for the news to get out to the rest of the city. Some people, 12 days later, still did not know that the city had fallen because of the size of the city. Do you think you could be proud of a place like that? Built in a time with the kind of technology that they had. This is a massive ego booster, okay? He's a power and, and has built a massive city. Babylonians had a catchphrase that started all the way back in Genesis chapter 11. Come, let us gather together and literally, it says, make a name for ourselves. Let's make a name for ourselves so we do not have to be afraid. Starting in Genesis chapter 11, Babylon has always been known for making a name for itself. Now, I just want us to pause and investigate our own hearts. Do we want to make a name for ourselves? You know, one of the Ten Commandments, it says to not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Do you know that that's not an admonition to stop cussing? We've taken it, we've reduced it to that. We get frustrated if somebody shouts out the name of the Lord as a a curse word. You know, that's not what it's talking about. It's actually talking about taking the name of the Lord, calling yourself a believer, putting his stamp on your life. He says, don't do that in vain. Don't say you're a believer and not live like it. Make his name great. Babylon says, let's make our name great. We need to make ourselves great. God says, you make my name great. We're people of the name. We have a name to make great. You don't have to work to make Jesus great. You know that? You just have to yield. Do you want to make Jesus great or do you want to be great? That's a question for our culture. How do I know personally if I am making Jesus great or if I'm focused on me? Can I just give you one test? I think there's four or five. Let me just give you one for this morning because of time. What is your spiritual gift? 
If you can't turn to your neighbor right now and announce your spiritual gift and you are a child of God, then you've been waiting to declare what you're strong at until you've made a name for yourself rather than serving God in the place where he has gifted you. What is your spiritual gift? You can't answer that? Get serving the Lord. Make his name great. He'll show you what you're supposed to be. Amen? All right, enough with that point. Let's go to the second one real quick. Daniel's compassion devastated him. Look what it says in verse 19. It says, Then Daniel, whose name is Belshazzar, was stunned for a moment, and his thoughts alarmed him. And the king said, Belshazzar, don't let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. Notice the friendship that's involved with this discussion. A foreign king using Daniel's foreign name is calling him out and saying, look, don't let it alarm you. He's having a discussion rather than commanding him. He's actually saying, come on, brother, just tell me what it is. And Belshazzar answered, my Lord, may the dream apply to those who hate you and its interpretation to your enemies. That, that idea there that he was stunned for a moment literally is he was appalled, he was alarmed, he was horrified. He was deeply hurt for what would happen to this king. Think about that. Daniel had committed to serve the king. He'd been subjugated by him. He had watched as his city was going up in smoke, as his friends were put with hooks around their necks and dragged off to Babylon. Daniel and his friends are quite probably altered as they come into that place. They are forced to learn foreign concepts. They are forced into those schools to learn how to be diviners and how to rule the land. They are forced into subjugation. But Daniel said, I'm going to submit to this process. And his submission to the king, his desire to submit to God and to do what he was called to do, has actually put him as the key advisor to the greatest king that history had known. He stands at this moment shocked and hurt for this king that he is serving. Can I just ask you once again to pause, and, and I want you just to, to think in your own heart. Don't say anything out loud. If you were to find out that Governor Kate was sick, I'm putting that right in the room. What would you do? Would you be there with a cancer diagnosis? Would you want to be the nurse that took care? Would you be hurt, sad, wounded on her behalf? Do you know that God loves her? That Christ died for her? Have our opinions become so strong that we have no affection for people that God loves? What happens if President Biden it's off the plane. He's just come from the Vatican. We find him in the rose garden picking flowers and pulling the petals off saying, they love me, they love me not, right? Just shuffling along wondering what to do. Would you want to protect him? Would you care for his soul whether or not you care for the politics? Now, I'm just picking one side here because let me ask you, what do people think Christians across the nation believe about those individuals, their worth, their value, or whether or not they should even be alive? We've heard vile things, haven't we? We've seen them on Facebook, and not all of them from those who are atheists. They will know we are Christians by our fill-in-the-blank. 
politics, right? They will know we are Christians by our steely stand, by our great signs, by our large buildings. No, they'll know we are Christians by our love. Everything else is useless, folks, unless we start there. Do you know that's what it says in Scripture? By our love. Erwin Lutzer had an amazing quote. He said, do you want to know if you're a servant? Just check your heart's response when you're treated like one. Are you a servant? Daniel was a servant to the king, and it devastated him to hear that this might happen. That is the way, by the way, that we influence great leaders. Third thing, coming up here, let's read the last section of this. King Nebuchadnezzar goes on in verse 28, and it says, And all this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon, and the king exclaimed, Is this not Babylon the Great that I have built, a royal residence by my vast power and for my majestic glory? And while the words were still in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it's declared that the kingdom has departed from you. You'll be driven away from people to live and with wild animals. You will feed on grass like cattle for seven periods of time until you acknowledge that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms and gives to them anyone he wants. At that moment, the message against Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled and he was driven away from people. He ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with dew from the sky until his hair grew like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. But at the end of those days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven and my sanity returned to me. And I praised the Most High God and I honored and glorified him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom from generations to generations. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. He does what he wants with the army of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. There is no one who can block his hand or say to him, what have you done? Central theme of the book. At that time, my sanity returned to me. My majesty and splendor returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and my nobles sought me out. I was reestablished over my kingdom. Even more greatness came to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and glorify the king of heavens. Because all his works are true and his ways are just, he's able to humble those who walk in pride. Amen? That happened. There's a moment, this last section here gives us two more thoughts. One is that the king's sanity departed from him. There's a note here, just really quickly to the critics. Some people say, well, this wouldn't happen. Um, the reason we don't believe in the book of Daniel is kings don't record these kinds of things about themselves, uh, and we don't see a record of this. Once again, it's a lack of them just getting the information because there actually is uh, much information out there, especially during the Babylonian period, of kings recording things like this that had happened against them. Philip uh, Long records what they have uh, listed as the Babylonian Job. It was written about this time, about somebody who was great, who had experienced a hardship. And in the middle of that, it says, I spent the night in my dung like an ox, wallowing in my excrement like a sheep. My symptoms are beyond the exorcist. My omens have confused the diviner. 
This is actually one of their stories that comes from that time period. Did people experience this kind of fearful thing where they would act like an animal or live like an animal? Yes. There's another one called the prayer of Nabonidus, which is, by the way, uh, the, the final king in Babylon. His son, Belshazzar, would sit on the throne. But this is a word from his prayer. It's called the prayer of Nabonidus. See if it sounds familiar. This is on a clay tablet. Uh, from that time period. It says, the words of the prayer which Nabonidus, king of the land of Babylon, the great king, prayed when he was afflicted by a malignant inflammation by the decree of God the Most High in Teman. I, Nabonidus, was afflicted by a malignant inflammation for seven years and was banished from men until I prayed to the Most High. And an exorcist forgave my sin. He was a Jew from the exiles who said to me, make a proclamation in writing so that glory and exaltation and honor would be given to the name of the Most High God. And I wrote as follows. When I was afflicted by a malignant inflammation in Teman by decree of the God Most High, I prayed for seven years to the gods of silver and gold, of bronze and iron and of wood and stone and clay because I thought they were gods. But at the end of that, he lifted up his name and records that the Most High God was the one who had healed him. This clay tablet is found, it was as a part of the Dead Sea Scrolls, a reminder. Some people have said, well, Nabonidus is the next king. Uh, Do you know that all throughout Scripture there is these patterns of tests that will happen to groups of people during a certain time period? I have no problem that Nabonidus tries to grab some glory in this moment, saying the same thing happened to me, trying to get his kingdom back. But I think what happened is Nebuchadnezzar's experience was so profound, it shocked all of the other royals that were around him. Nebuchadnezzar actually has this moment where he announces to the world, just like the next king that would rule, this is what God did on my behalf. He took me to my knees and he gave me the kingdom back. Do you believe that God has that power? All of our days, Scripture says, are written. The psalm tells us to teach us, Lord, to number our days so that we might present to you a heart of wisdom. Acts chapter 5, 1 Corinthians 11, 1 John 5, 16, all seem to indicate that in the lives of some believers, there is a sin unto death. Some in the room right now actually have a due date for repentance. I want you to think about this. As a believer, as somebody who knows God, If you are living in secret sin, there may be a time clock right now on that. 1 John 5 actually says that there's a possibility that you can sin to the point of death, that your hidden sins would be such a wreck to the name of Christ that God just says, let's not deal with it down there, let's deal with it here. It's not a matter of eternal security. It is a matter of God being God. In 1 Corinthians, with the Lord's table, it actually says that the reason that some of you are sick and that some of you have even fallen asleep, literally a a picture for dead, in 1 Corinthians it says it's because you have not handled the Lord's table rightly. You've not obeyed him. Is it possible 
that not, not looking around the rest of the room, that in your life there is a sin that has a due date and it's going to get exposed. This is what God says through this king in these words. Don't wait until tomorrow to repent. Do it today. Final thought. In our light and dancy walk through Daniel chapter 4, God provide, proved that dominion belongs to him. Sometimes God does wild things to get a nation's attention. Just a short while ago, a believer, wanting to make sure that he put Christ on display, actually put on his runner's tag, Jesus saves. Instead of his name, he put in there, Jesus saves. Halfway through the marathon, he has a heart attack. The reason it made national news is literally the nurse that ran to him, revived him, and got him to the hospital was named Jesus Bueno. All right? His name was Jesus is Good. And they made it on the Today Show. Jesus literally saved the guy whose name tag said, Jesus saves. Now, it may seem like a shocking coincidence and an interesting little story, but actually the opportunity to share Christ was given to an entire, it was put on a national display where we think it's quirky, but God actually uses something that would have never caught anybody's attention otherwise to put his name on display. God can still get in front of the entertainment industry far bigger way, David Berkowitz, who was known as the son of Sam, who in a bunch of satanically inspired murders, when I was growing up, people uh, were still talking about this, David Berkowitz, son of Sam, a guy who was responding to Satan, kills people. He was caught because a a traffic ticket um, hadn't been paid, and they were able to figure out that he was the one. He's now lodged up in a a state prison in New York. Up until about 12 to 15 years ago, he was constantly applying for parole. And then he found Jesus. He quit applying for parole and he said, "I, I, I can't actually get out. There's no way that I could ever pay for what I've done. I know that I am forgiven in Christ and I've given my life to serving people here in the prison. He says the only time that I have felt sane is when I gave my life to Christ. Out of Satanism, out of the drug abuse, out of all of the wickedness and into the Lord. Do you believe that God can save wicked souls? If he can save somebody as wicked as David Berkowitz, he can save this nation, our state, our city, and he can save us from our addictions. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of earth are counted as nothing. He does what he wants. With the army of heaven and with the inhabitants of earth, there's no one who can block his hand or say to him, what have you done? Will you yield? This is what I'm going to ask you to consider right now. AJ's going to come and lead us in worship, but this is what I believe I've been led to do. We can talk about the wickedness of the world and we can talk about the mess that our state is in. We can talk about how gnarly it is to live here. We can pine away for another state or another location that is still filled with wicked people and horrible potential. Or we can repent and be used by God right here in this day as servants 
of the king. Amen? But the question is, is there something in our life right now that God says, instead of looking at the wicked world, I want you to look at what's going on in your heart and get that right. Is there something you need to repent of that you're afraid there's a past due date on? And if your answer is, Lord, I got to repent, and you, you might even say, I can't tell the people around me. I haven't shared this with anyone. Irrelevant. You get on your knees, you start by saying, Lord God, will you help me to tackle this sin so that I can be used by you, so I can make your name great? If you're under conviction about something like that, I'm going to ask you at the end of this service not to come tell me what it is, not to expose those things, but to come and say, Lord God, will you begin to undo what I have woven into my life, the destruction that I know will harm me and hurt others. I repent. I'm going to ask you to do that at the end of this service. There may be one of you. You might all come. But here's what I'm asking you to consider. Do not leave today without dealing with it. Let's pray. Father, we ask you during these moments as we sing this final song to actually convict our hearts and prepare us to yield first to you. We know that when revival strikes, it starts with revival of a heart, repentance in the heart of believers. It doesn't start with the lost world. It starts with us. We yield. We subject ourselves once again to you. We stop thinking our thoughts and trying to force you into our grid, and we yield to you, the king of heaven, who can do whatever he wants among men. But you have chosen to work through us and in us. So, Father, we give you our lives. We ask that this morning you would help us as a church to have holy lives. Father, there are some right now who say, I, I know I'm under deep conviction. And if what is in my life comes out, it'll ruin my marriage. It'll destroy my business. It'll hurt my kids. It'll destroy my relationships. Father, you know that they cannot hide that for long. Repentance is found in you. Forgiveness is found in you. But also healing is found in you. This is the place where you expose what is destructive and you set captives free. We are proof of that. So, Father, I pray that you would set people free this morning. Cause us as a church to be clean as we look for our city to be revived. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.